Welcome back to the Teaching Matters podcast. My name is Jill, and in this episode, I'll be talking with Melissa Highton, Michael Seary, and Peter Buckley about where lecture recording might go in the future. Michael, so I don't know if you want to answer this with your academic user group chair hat or your lecturer hat or your director of teaching hat, but um, what, you know, what do you see as the value at where we are right now and where we're going? Yeah, so I suppose most of my experience really is as a lecturer or director of teaching, and this is... Um, raising the question about um, lecture captures and, and lectures in university. The lecturer will define the syllabus. That's why we consider that they are important. Um, so I do like the idea that, you know, this isn't just a one chance uh, event, that students have the chance to go over it again, because we are setting lectures out to be the primary source and primary of uh, primary importance in the university in terms of students progressing through it. So they have a chance to review it. The slight concern I have is around putting out this enormous bank of resources without telling students how they should manage it and and how they can use these resources intelligently. So we do hear of students watching lecture capture like um, lecture recordings like um, Netflix or that kind of thing. Yeah, the binge watch type thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we really, I mean, Peter's already alluded to some things. We really need to be clever about how we inform students and. Um, actively educate students about using lecture captures, be it to supplement notes or be it to um, review something that they had difficulty with, so that it becomes this resource either because somebody missed a lecture for whatever reason in their life, but also that it's something useful as a pinpoint resource where they can go in and pick up on something. I think when we look at them, when we look at the access statistics, that tends to be what students are doing. But I do worry a little bit about the baseline and, and whether there's a core of students who are just reviewing everything and watching everything. So I think we need to be very proactive in um, showing students that it has this amazing value, but it needs to be used very intelligently. Yeah, we have to support students to learn as well as just supporting them yeah by giving them the subject material. Otherwise, why would they come to a university versus just go and read a bunch of textbooks? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it comes back to the issue again that this isn't a lecture capture issue. I mean, it is emphasised because there's a recording, but essentially we could say the same thing about lectures. The students shouldn't just come to lectures and write notes and then look at them the night before the exam. They need to work through those intelligently. So this is just another resource that we need to inform students about how they use. Yeah. And uh, Melissa, so... You, I suppose, in some ways have a slightly or a very different role from Michael and Peter and myself in the university, but how do you see the value of lecture recording here? I think um, when we think about the value of any educational technology that we use in higher education, we partly think about what does it enable us to do that perhaps we couldn't have done before. Um, So the the value of recording something, making a digital copy of a one-off event, um, is that it shifts the tyranny of time and space. So if it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hear this lecturer talk about this topic and you had to be in the room in order to experience that and the room had to be bookable and the timetabling system had to have it and everybody had to be well enough to be there. And no snow. And no snow. (laughs) And no industrial action. (laughs) But what it does is it just breaks that requirement of time and space and says to us that we can make a digital copy that can be used or shared or cut or edited or listened to again or slowed down or speeded up um, or annotated um, in a way that the live event couldn't. So it doesn't remove the live event. It just gives an addition um, to enhance that um, and can be used in different ways. 
the recordings themselves don't exist in isolation. They are part of a, a system or a collection and the data that that collection gives us. So we get um, data from within the system as to how much things are being watched, when they're watched, how students are using them, which bits are being watched and rewatched, which lectures are not being watched at all, whether they're being watched late at night, early in the morning, or all just the night before the exam. So there's actually a set of data that is coming out of the lecture recording system that we didn't have before. Um, we also have the opportunity to show our lecturers to our friends um, and to other students who are not in the room. So we can share practice, discuss practice. We can do interdisciplinary things. Perhaps colleagues will start to use each other's lectures or make reference. We get to see each other's teaching um, in a way that people never have time to do the peer review where you're asked to go and sit in someone else's lecture. And yet we ask for examples of how different people teach and how people lecture in different disciplines. So having the ability to to make use of, to control the use of the recordings and use them in ways that are um, valuable to us. Um, those are digital assets now at your disposal. Um, and the value of making that available to colleagues in this institution. I want the colleagues in this institution to, to benefit from working here, which um, Edinburgh has a very rich landscape of, landscape of learning technology. And then I think that the PTAS projects, again, has made it possible for people to think about learning and teaching and think about lecturing in a way, maybe the technology has disrupted the conversation a little, but what, why do we lecture? What is the purpose of lecture? And is the purpose of lecturing as understood, is it, is it understood in the same way by staff and by students? What do they think the purpose of the lecture is? Is the purpose of the lecture to send you to the library? Is the purpose of the lecture to give you all the content that you need? Is it the canon? Um, why would we record or not record in the decisions that we make? So the value is in having triggering that institution-wide discussion. And then I think perhaps there will be unexpected values in that we perhaps have an enormous corpus of academic spoken English um, and people might want to do different things um, to look at that or, or do um, text analysis on the things that we teach oh, and how we teach. such an and, interesting idea for a know, project. <laughs> I think it is important to think about the lecture recordings not just as of another version of, of analogue and it is just the same. It is actually a set of resources that colleagues can use, students can use, and we can think differently about, and we can be confident that the service is there, everybody can use it if you want to try any of these innovative things. You don't have to book it specially, it's in all of the rooms. Um, it will be in all of the rooms. Um, I will just say why it's a three-year project. One of the reasons why it's a three-year project is that there's so many rooms. Um, <laughs> and in so many universities and buildings. Yes, and we, there's only certain times of the year that we can get in to, to um, add technology into the room. So the rollout um, has been across the rooms, across the three years, the integration with the timetabling system and the integration with the virtual learning environment has been an impressive bit of technical work by some of the teams in ISG um, and some of that is behind the scenes and the value of that work is to make available to colleagues this flexibility and for students the flexibility. Yeah I think that is yeah we should probably take a moment to sort of just say yeah that is it is a huge piece of work in terms of the 
technical challenge, especially when you think about the age of some of our teaching spaces as well and, uh, you know, what our teaching and learning environments can be like. Um, I think very often we can get a bit caught up in the pedagogy and discussion and just to kind of recognise that, yeah, that's a phenomenal piece of work as well. It's, it's probably, yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys, for supporting us. We we really do appreciate it. I mean, if I could just add one point, which is that that, that technical aspect, so the data that's coming out of that, if I'm looking at, and I haven't dared look at any of my recordings yet, but if I'm looking at one of my recordings and I see that there's a particular spot in the timeline that's being continually rewatched, there's clearly something going on there. So, I mean, that it, it can it, it is cyclical, I think. It, even though that data is technical and so on, it will return to a pedagogical conversation. I also think, uh, going back to what Melissa said at the beginning about um, um, the fact that it's a, it's, well, it's a three-year rollout to get as many teaching spaces equipped with the software and the hardware as possible. While it was just in one in 10 rooms or one in 20 rooms, it was an innovative way of teaching and therefore students have this expectation that the lecturer is going to do something fantastic with it. I remember when I was teaching in Italy and there we had one interactive whiteboard, one smart board in the, in the whole of the school, which you had to book out especially. So obviously if you use that room, if you happen to be timetabled there, students expected you to be doing fantastic things with the interactive whiteboard. When in fact, you may just want to just to use it as a as an interactive whiteboard and or a, a, a projector with, with um, internet access. Mm. I think while the sort of the lecture recording software and hardware was was in a few rooms, it was it was never going to be as effective as when it's rolled out everywhere um, in the way in the way it is at the moment. That really reminds me, actually, maybe a bit strangely about when I was an undergraduate, I remember coming back after one summer and suddenly everybody was giving us PowerPoint handouts. And, it, you know, thinking back on it now, it must have been a policy. There must, you know, and I'm sure that uh, my lecturers back then were having these kind of conversations. Um, but for me, it just, yeah, as a student, you were like, OK, now we're going to get handouts. And it's probably changed since then because I don't give, you know, I make my slides available, but I don't give handouts in the way that I was given handouts. And yeah, it's a continually changing and adapting process, this whole teaching business, I suppose. But referring to handouts, that's something that came into my research as well, both last summer and, and this summer, um, is the fact that, uh, well, I think a lot of the, the the conclusions I drew from my research, I don't think they do just apply to students who speak English as a second language. They apply to students in general. However, given that acquiring vocabulary in a second language is really difficult, especially when it's content focused and you're going to lectures to learn new stuff, um, the idea of having access to PowerPoint slides before the lecture was obviously one of the simplest um, preparatory exercises that these L2 students could do get their get their head around some of the this well currently unknown vocabulary so they go to a lecture um, that they know they can focus on just the listening comprehension because they know it's being recorded and therefore any other little wrinkles they can iron out afterwards um, but knowing that they've annotated or they've scribbled on printed PowerPoint slides before the lecture even just that I think just um, just would help them no end and given that again in my in my in my project um one thing i found surprising and enlightening was that all of the students whether they're from saudi arabia or kazakhstan or chile or belgium or whatever um they all came to well they all came to the classroom in my classroom or the lecture with preformed ready-made strategies for dealing with unknown lexis unknown vocabulary or dealing with graphs of information um so it's interesting it would be interesting to know 
how they acquire these strategies for dealing with vocabulary and graphical information or um, yeah, unknown vocabulary, but also what, what I can do as an EAP tutor, um, but also what lecturers could do to assist students in general, but also, as alluded to earlier by everybody, um, students with, well, things as a second language or students with learning difficulties, students with dyslexia, um, or caring responsibilities, students who, for whatever reason, yeah. cannot be present at that lecture. What could lecturers do to assist people viewing the lecture recording afterwards? Um, so I think there's still lots of conversations to be had about that, I think. Yeah. It's interesting, Peter, because you were talking about... Um, what was perceived as innovative teaching. You were using an example there of, you know, having a whiteboard and, and that being an innovative teaching. And I think we sort of, um, maybe sometimes when we're talking about the PTAS grants about lecture recording and we are talking about how academic champions for lecture recording can do things, we can sometimes fall into the trap of it being this uh, amazing innovative thing that you can only do new stuff with when actually a huge part of why we decided to do it in this way to make it centrally provided was for this equitable experience that all staff and all students would have access to this resource. And um, I kind of sometimes wonder if there's like a silent majority of people who are just kind of getting on with it and don't necessarily, you know, maybe for them it's it's not as disruptive or um, it's it's not this great big innovation. I don't know, Michael, if you've sort of experienced that from your director of teaching role or... Yeah, so in, in September, um, uh, just gone, we made the decision as a school that all lectures would be captured unless um, a staff member decided not to. Um, and staff members were told that it was essentially, even if they decided to, but wanted to pause a lecture in the lecture, everything was fine. So it's essentially just trying to regularise the system but leave the flexibility the staff members may wish to have. And I would say 95% plus of all of, of our lectures are captured, but, you know, without any real incident. or There are some issues cropping up um, around what, you know, the student expectations and I think the work is on us now to start managing student expectations and really distinguishing between lecture recording and lecture capture which is a conversation we've had many times in university um, that um, you know but th th that's just a case of working with students to explain what this service is and what it isn't. Melissa from your perspective does that sort of silent majority of people just kind of getting on with it not necessarily seeing it as this brand new innovation does that seem sensible to you? I think um, some, as Michael said, some schools, um, some staff uh, groups, colleagues have taken it, taken to it very easily um, and would actually like it to be even more simple, that they shouldn't have to do anything. It should just record automatically. And we're aiming for a situation in which if the lecture is timetabled and it's called a lecture and it's in a timetabled room, the system will know that a lecture is going to happen and will start to record automatically and then it is automatically put into the virtual learning environment and the students will find it there. And actually it t should take no additional effort from colleagues. And that's my ideal kind of technology is that it doesn't actually require extra effort from colleagues. That's the service that I want to offer. And that's a service that lots of people seem to be very happy to have. So we have hundreds of, of colleagues um, signing up to do that. Um, and obviously we're aiming to to make that available and, and to make that possible for everyone. The 
policy that we do have around the use of the system, I think, is important because there is copyright and various legal things that go with recordings. Um, and colleagues have always said that they need some people, you know, feel very strongly and I'm, I'm with them, that there should be a policy because it's a, it establishes a share under, shared understanding as to what the recordings are for and how they can be used and kept and shared. And the policy work that was done by a task group of the Learning and Teaching Committee, um, it took us a while because we were having a really good think about it. And we had a lot of people around the table and we took a lot of different views and we did an institution-wide consultation because there's a lot to think about. So there's the copyright and intellectual property there's how long the university might keep the recordings for. There's where will they be stored and shared and to whom. Um, there's what is the third party copyright in the recordings where colleagues are using other people's materials. And of course, there's that what are they, what is the expectation? What is it for? Is this something that we're going to use for distance learning? Is this the best quality recording that we're going to be broadcasting? No, it isn't. It's very clear from... You're saying I don't have to have a full face of makeup every time I do a lecture. Jill, you don't. You don't need that. I'm sure you know that. But I think it's important to say, um, to reassure colleagues and set some scope that this is a, these are recordings for the students who are currently on the course of the lectures that they would have attended, uh, they should attend, and if for some reason they've missed it. But the recordings are available to those students. And any other uses of these recordings is it can only be done with additional permission. Um, and so the university does not have any particular interest in, in using the recordings without anyone's permission. Um, but we have consulted widely um, and taken professional advice on the retention, the copyright, intellectual property and the use of recordings during industrial action. And one of the things that has shaped at Edinburgh the experience of lecture recording um, and this project is that we did have a large, um, a sustained period of industrial action um, at the institution in which, you know, members of staff in IT services and educational technologists were also part of that action. Um, so thinking about what the withdrawal of labour and the recordings of lectures and how those two fit together, um, I think has also raised a lot of discussions about what the um, policy for lecture recording should be. Um, I'm confident that we have arrived at a very good policy and I think it will be interesting to see how um, that changes the way we think about lecture recording um, and the kind of value and quality of learning and teaching in a technology-enhanced environment. Yeah, as the rollout um, continues to roll out, essentially, uh, we will just see this much more equitable provision of the technology and hopefully provision of resources for the students as well. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'll join us for our next episode. The Teaching Matters podcast is a new companion to the Teaching Matters blog and is really a place where we can have that conversation about teaching, bringing in different voices from across the university. If you're interested in talking about teaching, whatever it is that you do here at Edinburgh, do get in touch with Teaching Matters. And if you have an idea for a podcast, uh, Teaching Matters will definitely be interested in talking to you. So if you would like to write a post or contribute in some way, uh, the email address that you need is teachingmatters, all one word, at ed.ac.uk.